It comes to us this morning from Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Last Sunday, we began a series of sermons looking at some of the stones or rocks of Lent, and we're using that as a thematic approach to our text and to our preaching. Last week, Bruce did a wonderful job teaching us about the throwing stones, that the Pharisees were attempting to throw stones at the woman caught in adultery. And this morning, I want us to consider the, the foundational stone, the foundational rock that Jesus says he's going to build his church upon. Now, they say that millennials and Gen Z, they say that this group of folks are walking away from the church. And statistically, this certainly is true. It's easy to point fingers and say, well, the young people of today are just lost. It's easy to put generalizations over a whole group of our society and say, well, how dare they leave the church? Don't they know? And on and on and on. And in so doing, in some ways, we're pointing fingers and sitting in judgment. But maybe, maybe we need to hear their concerns. Maybe we do need to consider some of their complaints. Maybe we should look inward. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable now in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, our rock. Amen. When I was growing up, we began to notice that there was something wrong about our house. It was barely noticeable. To the casual observer, you probably wouldn't detect, notice anything that was wrong. But if you looked closely, you could see that up in a corner of a wall, there was a a small crack in the wall. Um, You could see an indentation that was sinking a little bit (coughs) in the back patio. Now, This didn't make any difference to us growing up. We barely noticed it. We didn't consider it too much. It didn't change our lives at all. It wasn't a cause for concern. But over time, if you were paying attention, the crack got a little bit bigger and the indentation a little bit deeper. All very gradual. Until the day my parents decided it was time to sell the house. At that point, an inspector came in and discovered there was something very very wrong. The foundation of the house was sinking. 
the builder had put the home on a very poor foundation. The house was sinking and it needed to be demolished. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright was a masterful architect, flamboyant personality, all the wonderful buildings and houses that he'd built, um, the new designs, the masterful use of space. He always contended that the most important part of a home or building is what is not seen, what is beneath the surface, the foundation. For if the foundation is not strong, it does not matter how beautiful everything else looks. Matthew tells us that they were in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the disciples, what are people saying about me? I mean, who do people think that I I am, actually? Because a lot of talk, a lot of people are guessing, saying this and that. And he asked the disciples, what's the word on the street about me? (laughs) One of them blurted out and said, well, some say that you are Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets that's come back, come back. But with spiritual insight beyond his ability even to comprehend, Peter looked and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter got it right. Peter was able to point to Jesus and say, you're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the anointed one. He gave him the loftiest title imaginable, the correct title, and Jesus responded to Peter and said, yes, 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 you are absolutely right. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. In other words, you didn't study this out. This is not because you're so smart or so keen or so intuitive. But my father revealed it to you, and Peter was able to give the right answer. And so we see that even Peter's faith, his trust, his confession, it's all a gift from God. And then Jesus continues, he looks at Peter and he says, as long as you've named me, Peter, as long as you've correctly identified me, I'm going to name you or rename you. From now on, you are Peter, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Boy, that must have been a great moment for Peter, right? What an incredible moment. He got the right answer, better than all the rest. And then Jesus says, upon you, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, this has been a controversial text in the church universal. I mean, what is this rock? What is this stone that Jesus is going to build his church on? Is it the person of Peter? Well, that's how the Catholic Church interprets this, that there's an apostolic line of the papacy, and it began with Peter. And on this person, I'm going to build my church. And so they, they look to Peter as the, the founder of the church, the originator, and then it, the popes kind of continue from there. But the Protestants said, no, that's not what's happening here. In our Protestant tradition, What we understand Jesus to say is not on the person of Peter, but on his words, on his confession. When Peter says, I confess that you are the son of the living God, you are the anointed one, Jesus says, that's the point where we're going to build this. On that confession, Peter, I'm going to start my church. It's going to begin The gates of hell will never be able to thwart what I'm going to do, and I'm going to build on that confession. Jesus is our foundation. 
Jesus is our sure foundation for the church and for our lives. He is the solid rock. And when the church of Jesus Christ builds on anything else, pretty soon cracks are going to show up. Pretty soon there will be indentations in the back. Pretty soon the house is going to crumble. It's going to have difficulty. Just this past week, we read in, on the news and media, and these are becoming so boring, but yet another megachurch celebrity pastor who had a great fall. It seems to be happening week after week. <clears throat> I don't think the Church of Jesus Christ is meant to have celebrity pastors. I do not think it works. If Mountain View had a celebrity pastor, of course, it would be Pastor Lynn. <clears throat> we all know that. But we, we do our best to keep her humble. <laughs> but I don't think it works. The nature of celebrity is look at me, watch me, admire me. That doesn't work. We're all fallible, broken. Pastors are fallible, broken. If you watch me, you're going to see some cracks. If you follow me, you're in deep trouble. No, we are supposed to watch Jesus, follow him. Our, the, the foundation that we may be tempted to build on is celebrity, but it also might be power or wealth or attractiveness or, or, or special gifting. None of them work. Jesus did not start his church thinking that we would build upon any of those things. We're supposed to build the church upon the foundation of Peter's confession. When he confesses, you are the Lord, the living one, the anointed one. When we confess Jesus as Lord, when we keep coming back and pointing to him as the author, the finisher of our faith, the one that we always want to look to and emulate and follow, then the church erupts. The church is built. The church is sustained. With all that has and will come to light in the church, the cracks, it's a reminder to us that confession and humility and repentance is the only way. It saddens me that younger people are leaving the church, but maybe the church has been built on something that it should never have been built upon. We don't follow leaders, we follow Jesus. We don't put our hope in leaders, we put our hope in Jesus. We don't worship church or movements, we worship Jesus. Church is done right when we rely not on ourselves, not on our goodness, not on our strength, not on our organizational skill or good financial stewardship. The church is meant to be a place where Jesus is trusted and admired. The nature of the church is for us to, to look at Jesus, not look at other people. The other danger is to make the foundation of the church built on current trends 
or political movements in a society. They come and go. They always do. But here's the thing. When Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, Peter, on this confession, it has sustained. It's still going. Think about all the kingdoms and empires and political movements and leaders that have been cast aside. What is the one thing in human history that is continuing on and is strong and is continuing to grow? It's exactly what Jesus said. Friends, we dare not put our trust in any movement, any political party. We dare not say that our church is a progressive church or a conservative church or in alignment with this. No, our church is founded upon Jesus Christ. And we confess him as Lord. No one else is Lord. No government, no leader, no movement has our allegiance. Only Jesus. And we keep going back to him and listening to him and learning from him. We will never be masters of this enterprise. He leads, we follow. Do you know that perhaps the safest place to be If you were in San Francisco, the safest place to be if there was a large earthquake would be standing on the Golden Gate Bridge. Did you know this? Even though it's built right on top of the San Andreas Fault, engineers from uh, some schools said that it couldn't be done, but some others argued, no, you can do this. Um, There was an argument that you should never attempt it, but the Golden Gate has two towers that are a mile apart, And they dug so deep into the bedrock, deeper than any bridge that had ever been built before. The piers are a living part of the stone. And the bridge is totally limber. It sways 22 feet in the middle. Horizontally, it sways 10 feet up and down vertically. It's only been closed once because of high winds. Not because the bridge was unsafe, but because trucks would tip over. The entire bridge is preoccupied with the foundation. The two tables, the two uh, cables go of the tower, they go so deep into that bedrock. You know, when the big earthquake came in 1989, the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge did just fine. The Bay Bridge collapsed, you remember, but it was built differently. It wasn't preoccupied as much with the foundation. What happens if the church is so preoccupied, so embedded, so deep into our lordship of Jesus Christ's confession? What happens? The church can withstand movements. The church can go through high winds. The church can sway. It can can even buckle at times, but it's going to be steady if we keep on going back to confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and looking to him. The high winds may come, but we will be safe. What happens when a church is preoccupied with its true foundation? Well, an alternative community begins to form. A community begins to form that looks very, very different in our world. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay, gave an address years ago called The Inner Ring. It's one of the finest things I think he ever wrote. He, he talks about one of the great driving motives of the human heart it, that is often unrecognized 
is the desire to be on the inside or the inner ring. We need to feel that we are on the inside of some group that we admire or we feel like we can't live with ourselves. So Lewis talked about how in academia, for example, he, he would talk about how many scholars would work hard on their scholarship, but they were probably working more on their scholarship to be approved by their peers than on true scholarship. More important was, am I going to be accepted by the inner group, by that group, whatever it is that is seen as the in crowd? And so scholarship, he said, really suffered because people weren't doing true work. They, there were demands placed. But if you're going to be seen as the inner ring, you've really got to do it our way. And then whenever you have an inner ring, there's always an outside group that you define yourself against, right? And it's true all throughout society. People working hard to make money so that they can move into that neighborhood, get into that club, seen as respectable. It drives us to be in the inner ring. And this is not just true with those who are wealthy or learned. Street gangs are built on the same principle. I will do anything to get in with that group that is the in crowd. It's how I find affirmation for myself. It drives us, and it begins early in our life in junior high, right? There's that in crowd. I, I love to be into that inner crowd, that inner ring. But if you're not, what, what is your posture towards them? You despise them. And if you're in the inner ring, the inside, how do you talk about those on the outside? And in our world, in political circles, the inner ring, the language keeps changing, right? The standards keep changing. Why? so that we can continue to keep an inner ring and define those who are out. This is going on all throughout our lives, all throughout society. The inner ring makes all kinds of demands on your behavior and speech to make sure that the inner remains inner and those on the outside are easily identifiable. Now, what does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with the bedrock, that the foundation that we're founded on? Well, everything. Because when you walk in the doors of the church, we instantly tell you that you can be part of the inner ring. But not the way you think. By the blood of Jesus, you and I have been ushered into the ultimate inner ring. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are, we are accepted by the only person that counts. When you know that you're loved and accepted and cared for in that way, it destroys our need to be on any other inner ring. And if we don't know that we are saved by God's grace and that we're accepted and loved by him, we're going to have to go somewhere else to find it. And it'll drive our behavior, it'll drive our beliefs, our convictions, and it'll begin to feel like desperation. But here's the thing. If you and I are on the inner ring of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we despise no one. There is enough love in that inner ring for the whole world exhaustive amount of love. So we don't create a ring that says only these folks can be in it. It's a ring that desperately wants everyone to be in it. It's constantly inviting, constantly welcoming. And friends, the church has had a struggle in so many places at so many times when we've become an inner ring and a lot of millennials and Gen Z are saying, I'm fighting this inner ring everywhere. Why would I come to the church and find it here also? 
And I think they have a point, and we ought to be mindful of that. This is a different kind of community when we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. When we are on the inner ring with Jesus, we begin to see how he treated and loved those on the outside. One of the things he got criticized for so much is they said, how come you're talking to people on the outside? Sinners. Why are you doing that? People were like, that's not the way the world works. But it's the way Jesus works, and he wants to build a church that is constantly looking outward and saying, you are welcome. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, we do not cancel people. In fact, when people are canceled in our society, we say, well, there's another community that's going to welcome you with open arms and say, here, come here. We want you to discover the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's this true story that I think some of you have heard. Um, maybe I've shared it with you, but I think it's worth hearing again because it's powerful. Um, it's a true story shared by Tony Campolo. He's a famous Christian speaker, writer, and he was going from the East Coast to speak in Hawaii, and so his time was all messed up, and at 3 in the morning he was wide awake. So at 3 in the morning he was wide awake, and he thought, well, I'm hungry, I'm going to go look for something. So he went out of his hotel, and he found a diner that was open, and he went in, and there was hardly anybody there, 3 in the morning. And he's there, ordered something to eat, and in walked three prostitutes into this diner. And they sat in the booth next to him, and he overheard them talking, and one of them said, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. And she said, I've actually never had a birthday before, but tomorrow's my birthday. And the other two didn't really say anything. After they left, Tony went to the owner of the diner who was working there, and he says, do you know who that woman was? He says, yeah, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night at the same time. And Tony said, well, how about tomorrow night when she comes in, we throw her a birthday party? Do you know any of her friends? And he said, yeah, I know all of her friends. I know everyone who comes into this place. Tony said, well, I'll get a cake, and then could you invite all her friends tomorrow, and at 2.30 a.m., we will celebrate her birthday? And he said, yeah. And Tony writes this. He says, that night at 2.30, never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. Her, her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and as she was led to one of the stools by the counter. We all sang happy birthday to her. When we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. And then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she just lost it. She openly wept and cried. Harry, the owner of the diner, gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles. Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. After a few endless seconds, Harry had to blow out the candles. And then he handed her a knife, said, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, cut the cake. We all want some cake. And Agnes looked down at the cake. And then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, 
what I want to ask is, is it, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it, is it all right if I don't eat it right away? And Harry shrugged. Sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. You can take it home if you want. Can I? She asked. And then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll, I'll be right back, honest, I promise. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, carried it like it was the Holy Grail, and walked slowly towards the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place, and not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we all pray? Looking back on it now, it seems a little strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then he says it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed. I prayed that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, hey, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry paused a moment and almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd, I'd join, a, join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for outsiders? for prostitutes, 3.30 in the morning. That's the kind of church Jesus came to establish. It began with Peter's confession, and it continues every time we gather and say, look, look at him. This is the Lord. He's the anointed one. And we follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that on that confession you built your church. And we thank you that you've built this church. So we pray that we would be so preoccupied with you and the foundation of our faith. And then help us to be a church that loves outsiders, cares and invites and welcomes those into the circle, the ring the joyful ring of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.